The following resource is from Cambrian Park Baptist Church. For more information, please visit cpbchurch.org. Father, we're so thankful for your word. It is such a blessing for us to be able to gather together like this and to open up your scriptures and to hear words that ought to strengthen us in our faith. We pray that that is exactly what would happen during this time. Please, by your spirit, speak through me and speak through this passage to us in all of the ways that we need to hear you speak to us right now. Grow us in our knowledge of you. Give us a clear vision of you. And cause us, Father, as a result of seeing you more clearly, as a result of seeing ourselves, of seeing others, of seeing Christ more clearly, to be rightly strengthened, to have our faith in you increased, to have our love for you increased, to have our love for others increased. Please enable me to communicate this uh, message clearly and effectively. Cause us to, to listen closely, to, to not only pay attention out of our love for you and our desire to glorify you, but to, to seek to apply this word to our hearts. We pray that as a result of, of seeing Paul's incredible work here in Acts 20 where he's strengthening churches, I ask that you would help each of us to follow in his footsteps and to strengthen our brothers and sisters by building them up with our words, just as we see Paul doing here in this passage. Make us better at that and make us a stronger church as a result. And I pray the same that as we see the believers, uh, uh, how the believers ought to have been strengthened by, what, by the incredible miracle that they witnessed here in, uh, in Troas, I pray that you would help us to be strengthened as we witness the incredible miracle that you've done in each of our lives, in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Help us to show that incredible life to them that you've given us, uh, that they might be strengthened by it, and help us to witness it well in their life, that we might be strengthened as a result too. All of these things, Lord, we pray for your glory. Um, we pray that this time of worship would be pleasing to you as, uh, as we seek to, to understand what your word says and live in accordance with it. Um, we also ask that you would do these things out of your love for us because we know it's best for us when this happens as well. All of this we pray in your name and trust in your spirit for it. Amen. All right. Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to be today. If you're not already there, you can go ahead and turn there now. Hopefully you're already there. Do you want to be strong in your faith? Knowing most of you, I know most of you well enough to, to know that the answer to that question is, is yes. I don't think anybody here would say, no, you know, I want to be a weak follower of Jesus. Right? We all want to be strong in our faith. Do you want to help others be strong in their faith? Again, knowing most of you, I would say that the answer to that question is a, is a yes too. So how do we do that then? How do we strengthen others in the faith and how can we be strengthened ourselves? What could we possibly look to to find the answer for this? If only we had a good example somewhere in the Bible of someone who really strengthened the church well, of someone whose actions and impact could actually be instructive for us. Well, if you've been here over the past few weeks as we've been working through the book of Acts, hopefully you can tell that I'm teeing up an introduction for the Apostle Paul here. Uh, and in Acts 20, um, today, which is where we're at today, um, we've already seen Paul in so many ways, we work through the book of Acts, be an excellent example for us of how to strengthen the saints, of how to strengthen believers. And today we're going to see two things in the passage this morning that I hope will give us a better understanding of how we can be strengthened in our faith and of how we can strengthen others in their faith too. Here's the main idea for you. Saints are strengthened through the words and works of other saints. Saints are strengthened through the words and works of other saints. The Holy Spirit, perhaps a better way to put it, uses the words of believers 
and the works he performs in other believers' lives to strengthen believers. So we're going to consider both of those things today. First, we're going to look at God strengthening saints through the words of other saints, and then we're going to look at works that strengthen. So strengthen with words and strengthen with works. Let's look at the first point, strengthen with words. How can you grow stronger in your faith? How can you help others grow in their faith? Strengthen them with words. Verse 1, we read, quote, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. What was this uproar that had ceased? Well, from last week's sermon, you'll recall that there was quite a commotion in the city of Ephesus, right? The Holy Spirit was working so powerfully there that people were turning away from their idolatry of, God, of, the, of the false god Artemis and turning to worship the true God and that this change of heart was having real economic repercussions for craftsmen like Demetrius and others who were involved in profiting from this industry of Artemian worship. And given his love for money, this hit to Demetrius's pocketbook was hard felt. Uh, he didn't take it lightly. And so he stirred up a crowd, a crowd that probably gotten more riled up than he had intended to. And people ended up flocking the theater. They were crying out different things, as you will recall. There was so much confusion there that they didn't even know why they had gathered. And then when a Jewish man stood up, the crowd started shouting in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours, until finally the town clerk quieted them down with a warning that they could be charged for rioting. Right? No one wanted to upset the Romans. They weren't, shall we say, appreciative of local uprisings like that. And so the crowd dispersed. And now we pick up here in verse 1 where it says, After the uproar ceased, Paul is still in Ephesus, and he sends for the Christians before he leaves. What does he do when they come? It says he encourages them. The word here means, quote, to urge strongly or to appeal to, exhort or encourage. To what end do you think Paul urged them or encouraged them? We don't know exactly. The Scriptures doesn't say. But in light of the situation in Ephesus, in light of the uprising that just transpired, he may have encouraged them to remain faithful in the face of difficulty or adversity. Whatever it was, he spoke to strengthen the saints before he left, perhaps reminding them of their power in Christ, or perhaps admonishing them in the way of righteousness. And then he sets off to do what? To strengthen other saints. Now Luke's travel log in verses 1 through 6, uh, it sticks pretty closely to the facts of Paul's travel, which is interesting because we know from Paul's letters that during this time, quite a bit was happening. He was writing letters to churches, and he was also in the process of collecting an offering to bring to the church in Jerusalem to help out some of the poor Christians there. But Luke doesn't mention that in Acts. Verse 1 says that Paul departed from Macedonia. That means Paul traveled northeast through the region that was called Asia, which is located today in Turkey, in order to head into the region of Macedonia. And then verse 2 says, When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So those regions may have included cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And these are all located in modern-day Greece, by the way. Back then they were part of the region called Macedonia. And then when Paul came to the area, which in this passage is called Greece, it's also located in Greece today, he probably ended up staying in the city of Corinth. Now, in verse 1, it said that Paul encouraged the disciples in Ephesus before he left. He strengthened them. And then in verse 2, it's the same word again. Paul gave the saints in those regions, quote, much encouragement. In fact, the footnote in one translation, I think, renders the Greek text in a more literal fashion. 
It says that Paul, quote, encouraged them with many a word. Encouraged them with many a word. How did he strengthen them? With many words. With his lips. Right? And to that you could probably also add his pen, since he was also writing letters during this time. Verse 3 says there, that's in Greece, probably in Corinth, there he spent three months. Perhaps it was winter time and the weather wasn't conducive for travel. But he also probably wrote his letter to the Romans while he was there, by the way. And then continuing in verse 3, it says, When a plot was made against Paul by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. We don't know what the plot was, but it warranted a change in travel plans for Paul. So he heads back up through Macedonia the way he came. And then Luke provides us with a list of uh, some of his travel companions in the next verse. It says in verse 4, Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. We know that Paul preferred to do ministry work with others, as we all should. Ministry is a team sport. However, the people listed here were probably representatives from at least some of the churches that had participated in the collection for the uh, Christians, the poor Christians in the Jerusalem church. And so they may have accompanied Paul to help bring the offering to the church there. And verse 5 says that these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, after Passover. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So Paul encouraged the disciples in Ephesus. And then he traveled up through Asia and Macedonia and down into Greece, encouraging the saints there with many a word, as the text says. And as we know from his letters, he's also strengthening churches through his writing, which is still a good way to strengthen people, by the way. You don't need parchment. Texts and emails work just fine for that. But through his words, Paul's emboldening believers. Through his words, he's exhorting believers. Through his words, he's fanning into flame the hope that these believers have in Christ. Through his words, he's urging them to write actions and attitudes And through his words, he's increasing their knowledge of the truth. These are all things that make us stronger followers of Jesus. And whether it's spoken words or written words, the Apostle Paul is strengthening the saints with his words. Or perhaps better put, the Holy Spirit is using Paul's words to strengthen the saints. And lo and behold, what do we we find when Paul gets to Troas? Surprise, surprise, more words. More strengthening words. And not, in fact, not just more. I would say a lot more. Verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. That's a lot of talking. He talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. All the way until midnight, it says. Words, words, words. Doing what? Strengthening the saints. Strengthening the saints. Now when it says that he talked with them, that may not have meant that he preached the whole time in a monologue format like this. It may have been more of a dialogue, but even then, Paul still seems to be the primary talker here. And he speaks to them throughout the night, knowing that he's leaving town the next day. Why does he do that? He's making the most of every minute that he has with them. And so he's filling it with what? Words that strengthen them. That's what he thought would probably be the best use of the limited time that he had. He's building them up with his words. Now notice something neat in this verse. When does it say that they gathered? It says it was on the first day of the week. Now depending on whether Luke was using the Roman or Jewish 
reckoning of days. This either could have been Sunday afternoon or evening, or it could have been Saturday evening, since the Jews considered a day to be from sundown to sundown. But either way, it was still considered the first day of the week or Sunday. Now, the text doesn't state that the church in Troas regularly gathered on Sunday, but the verse could lend itself to that. And if that's the case, then here in Acts 20, we might have one of the earliest references to Christians gathering on the first day of the week. Now, believers probably did this for a few reasons. For one, the synagogue was on Saturday, so it may have been easier for them to meet on a different day. But more importantly, the first day of the week was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And that could be why John and the book of Revelation refers to Sunday as the Lord's Day in Revelation 1.10. It was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, regardless of whether verse 7 is describing a regular church gathering here, the activities that we see in Troas were certainly characteristic of early Christian gatherings. They discussed the word and they broke bread, probably referring to the celebration of communion in the context of a fellowship meal or a love feast. Now today, when is the church gathered to do this? on the first day of the week, right? On the Lord's Day. That's become a habit of the church. It became a habit for them very quickly, but it wasn't already a habit for them then. And that's why, as others have rightly said, Sundays are the most important day of discipleship in the life of the church. That's where you have the body being strengthened with words that build them up through preaching and teaching just like this. Of all the days of the week, Sundays are where you're going to find the church gathered to receive the highest dosage of words that build us up in the faith all week. Sundays are where you'll you'll find that. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, quote, Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25. Don't neglect the gathering of the saints. God uses the words of believers to strengthen us as believers. Similar to what Paul did in Ephesus and the regions he traveled through in Macedonia where he encouraged them with many a word. And here again in Troas where he prolonged his speech until midnight We as Christians are called to strengthen one another in the faith, to encourage one another, just as the author of Hebrews says, and to stir one another up to love and good works. How can we do that? Here comes the application point for you. You ready? Use your words. Use your words. How? What can you say to build people up? Here's a few practical suggestions for you. One, when you see good in your brother or sister's life, Affirm it. When you see good in your brother or sister's life, affirm it. Tell someone, hey man, it's so awesome to hear that you got to share the gospel with your coworker the other night. I'm so, go- I'm so glad that God gave you that opportunity. We praise him for that. I'm so thankful to God that he's given you a, a true love for the lost in your life. That really is a work of his spirit. It's so good to be able to do what you shared too, where you were actually able to bring the gospel to bear on their specific idols and struggles that they had shared with you. I'll be continuing to pray for him. I'll be continuing to pray for you as you minister, not only to him, but your other coworkers as well. And I know that God is greatly glorified by your faithfulness. I'm excited to see what fruit he might bring from the work that you're doing there. I'll I'll continue continue to pray for them. I'll continue to pray for you, and you make sure that you continue to pray for them too. All right, affirm and reinforce the good things that you hear your brothers and sisters say or that you hear about them doing. That's one way to strengthen the saints with your words. Another way, number two, 
is when you see something bad in their life, to correct it. When you see something bad in their life, correct it. Hey, sister, I've noticed that you haven't been attending the communion groups or joining us for discipleship lately. Is everything okay? Or maybe, hey, brother, can I talk with you for a second? You know, I could be wrong about this, but at lunch it sounded like you were sharing a struggle that Brandon had with someone else. This is a hypothetical, by the way. Did not hear this. But, you know, was I hearing you correctly on that? If so, I was worried because the scriptures say that in Matthew 18, if we have a struggle about somebody, that we should take it to them first, that we should share it with them, not talk about it with other people. You know, was I, have you done that yet? Was I hearing you correctly? And if that person recognizes that what they did was wrong, then we can, we can tell them, you know, there is, there's forgiveness in Christ. You can take that to God. You can confess that to him, seek his forgiveness. And then maybe we can help them probe their hearts a little bit more to uncover what their motive was for, for sharing something about, about Brandon at lunch um, without talking with him and try to address those motives with the gospel. In other words, any area of sin or concern that you notice in a brother or sister's life we're supposed to lovingly come alongside that person and correct it. Encouragement and exhortation, and exhortation doesn't just mean telling, telling people to keep doing the good things that they're already doing. right? It is that, but strengthening the saints also involves correcting their wrong. It's very important. also involves correcting their wrong. And then number three, when you have good things to tell people, tell them. When you have good things to tell people, tell them. In other words, you don't need to wait for something in your brother's life to either affirm or to correct. Just tell people the good things that you've learned. Tell people the good ways that God's blessed you or grown you recently. In our community group a couple weeks ago, we had talked briefly about how when we read our Bibles, it's good for us not just to read for ourselves, but to get in the habit as we read to pick out one thing or two things that we can share with a brother or sister. Get in the habit of doing that as you read the Word or maybe as you listen to things. Pick out something to remember. You can even write it down if you want. And then make it a point to share that with someone else. In fact, sometimes I'll share the same thing with multiple people. That's fine. If you have something good to tell people, tell it to them. You need to be strengthened by the words of other saints. And they need to be strengthened by your words. Something that we ought to strive to be faithful on, just as we see the Apostle Paul doing so well here in Acts chapter 20. Now, here's an acronym you can ready, you can remember. Um, we don't get to do this very much in sermons, so when we have a good acronym, I hope that you're able to appreciate it because um, sometimes uh, these aren't as easy to come up with. But here it goes. Are you ready? A for affirm. When you see something good in someone's life, affirm it. C for correct. When you see something wrong, correct it. And T for tell. When you have something good to tell people, tell it to them. A-C-T, act. Do you want to act like Paul? and strengthen the church with your words, then act. You are called to act. How can you strengthen others with your words? Affirm the good in their life, A. Correct the bad in their life, C. And tell them the good things you've learned, T. A-C-T. Act. And guess what? You have an opportunity to practice that today. Stay for lunch after the service. You can't be strengthened by the words of other saints, and they can't be strengthened by you if you're not talking with each other, right? Plus, you have to eat lunch anyway, so you might as well stay and have lunch and, and apply the sermon to, uh, to, to our lives by um, strengthening each other like this. Strengthen a brother or sister today and make it a habit every single time you get together with someone to tell them something good, to tell them good things. Why not? You want to hear that, don't you? You want to hear words that build you up? And I know that your brothers and sisters want to hear that too. Every single time we gather 
Let's strengthen one another with our words. Build one another up with our words. So we've seen Paul strengthen the saints with many a word as he traveled around the Mediterranean world. And we see in our first point here that saints are strengthened through the words of other saints. God strengthens believers with the words of other believers. So open your mouth. Speak. Affirm. Correct. And tell people the good things that you've learned that God is doing in your life. Now I want to turn our attention to something else that strengthened the church in Troas. As Christians... We're strengthened by more than just words. We're also strengthened by the works that God does through his saints. So point number two, strengthen with works. It's Sunday. Paul's with the church at Troas. And the text may suggest that they were meeting in a lower class residence here. And they've gathered together to fellowship, to celebrate communion. And Paul's talking with them late into the night. And then Luke provides us with an interesting detail in verse 8. He says, quote, you can look at the verse, There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Why would Luke tell us this? Parchment space was limited, so there's got to be a reason why I chose to put this detail in here. Well, you heard the passage read. You know how the story goes. We're about to hear of this young man, Eutychus, falling asleep and subsequently falling to his death. And the detail about the lamps here may be setting the stage for this. The lamps could have been used for heat or they could have been used for light. Either way, if they were for light then it showed that it was getting dark outside or had gotten dark outside. And if the lamps were for heat, they could have been making it warm in the room and, as you well know, making it easier to fall asleep. They were also probably oil-fed lamps, so it's possible that the smell of them could have contributed to Eutychus' drowsiness. Or maybe they were making the room stuffy, not necessarily the ideal environment for someone who's trying to stay awake, right? Now, the fact that this was an upper room tells us that they were above ground level, which is significant in light of what happens next. However, the detail about the upper room may be cueing us into an amazing parallel here. I'm not talking about the Lord's Supper either. Hold on to that thought. We're going to get back to it in just a second. But verse 9 says that a young man, possibly between the ages of 8 and 14, named Judicus, interestingly his name means lucky or fortunate, a young man named Judicus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. He was sitting at the window. Perhaps he wanted to get some fresh air because of the smell or the stuffiness in the room. Or maybe he was just trying to cool down because it was warm inside. And he was dozing off into a deep sleep as Paul kept talking and talking. Maybe he was just trying to fight it. Just trying to keep his eyes open. But it wasn't working. And he kept slipping off as Paul talked on and on and on, and on. Maybe just thinking about that right now might be enough to make you sleepy. If it was Sunday, too, he may have also been tired from a full day of activities or possibly even a day of work, too. And so just put yourself in his place. It's late at night. Maybe you've worked that day, and you're listening to someone drone on and on. Maybe it's even past the time you normally go to sleep, and you're in a setting like this. Perhaps the smell of the lamps are burning, and it's making you sleepy, or maybe it's stuffy inside or nice and warm in the room. I think we all know that feeling when you're just trying so hard to stay awake and you just can't stop it. It's slowly taking you over and you're feeling the inevitability of it and you're just sinking down, down, down into dreamland. And Eutychus eventually did. He couldn't hold out any longer. And then what? It says in verse 9 that being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. 
He fell out the window. He fell out the window. Now, can you imagine that for just a second? Just how horrifying this would be? Imagine that happening to one of the kids in our church. That's what it was like. It was one of the kids in the church at Troas. Imagine that happened to one of the kids in our church. What if we were in the upstairs room on a Wednesday night, and maybe it's warm in the room and we have the, the windows open as we're teaching or talking, and one of the kids leans on the screen and falls through the window. And then you hear the sudden sound of, of the scream of, of, of women who witness the boy falling out of the window. And then, of course, you hear the sickening thud of the boy's body hitting the ground. And everyone, we all rush down the stairs in desperation, scrambling over to get over to him, only to find, to our horror, that the boy's body, the boy's precious body, is laying there lifeless on the ground. And you can imagine the sense of overwhelming despair that would set in. Right? Maybe some people begin bursting into, into tears while others call 911. But all the while, we, we all know that it's too late. It's a nightmare. Right? It's a living nightmare. But that is what happened here. That happened here in Acts chapter 20. That happened in Troas. This young boy fell out the window during a church service and plummeted to his death. It said he fell down from the third story. And that would actually be the equivalent to the second floor for us. And while the height itself may not have automatically been fatal for him, this fall certainly was fatal for him. Verse 9 says that he was taken up dead. He was taken up dead. What a horrific scene. Then we get to verse 10. And it says, But Paul, but Paul, went down and bent over him. He bent over him. The NIV says, quote, Paul threw himself on the young man. It's probably a better translation. You say, hmm, throw himself. Does that ring a bell for you? By means of Paul throwing himself upon the boy, through his body-to-body contact with the boy, God performed an amazing miracle. Verse 10 says, Taking the boy in his arms, Paul said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. He embraces the young man in his arms and tells them, Don't worry, or some translations say, Don't be distressed. Perhaps commotion already broken out. Why does Paul tell them this? Because the boy's life has come back. Paul threw himself upon the boy, and God brought the boy to life again. Amazing. Amazing. Have we seen miracles like this before? We have, of course. We call these resuscitation miracles. I think resuscitation is probably a better term than resurrection. Uh, the reason being that in each of these cases, the dead people receive their life back only to die again in the future, right? They are revived or resuscitated in their previous bodies. A resurrection, on the other hand, involves receiving a new body that's fit for eternal life. So far in human history, that's only happened to one person. That person was Jesus. Right? But we've seen other resuscitations before. We've seen Jesus bring people back from the dead, like the widow of Nain's son that we just read in the call to worship today, or the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue ruler in Luke 5, or Jesus' friend Lazarus in John 11. We've seen Peter bring back Tabitha from the dead in Acts 9. She was the woman who was full of good deeds and who served the widows. And in these miracles, God used the spoken word of Peter or Jesus, speaking to the dead person to bring them back. For example, in Acts 9, if you'll remember, Peter turned 
to Tabitha's body, and he said to her, Tabitha, arise, and she opened her eyes, right? But this miracle in Acts 20 is a little bit different. We don't see Paul saying to Eutychus, Eutychus, arise. Instead, Paul throws himself upon Eutychus. That's odd. Have we ever seen anything like that before? Ever seen anything like that before? We have. It harkens us back, though, a little bit further than Peter and Jesus. It actually seems to direct our attention to two resuscitation miracles in the Old Testament. In fact, there are only three miracles like this in the Old Testament, by the way. One was performed by Elijah. The other was performed by Elisha. And then the third was technically by Elisha too, but uh, more specifically it's by Elisha's dead bones. Body's thrown into Elisha's grave and it comes alive when, uh, when it touches Elisha's bones. But remember back in 1 Kings chapter 17, God directed the prophet Elijah to go stay with the widow and her child in Zarephath during a time of drought. And God provided for the widow and her son and Elijah by ensuring that their jug of oil and their jar of flour would never run out. But then something tragic happened. The woman's son died. And the widow's initial reaction was to think that God had killed her son as a result of remembering her sin, perhaps because of Elijah. And so what does Elijah do? He takes the boy from her arms and he carries him where? Carries him to the upper room where he was staying. The prophet was staying in the upper room. And he lays the boy down on his bed and he stretches himself out on the boy three times. He laid down on top of the boy and he prayed, verse 21, he prayed, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And God listened to Elijah. And in verse 22 we read, that the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What do we learn from the story? Number one, that God is a compassionate God who has the power to give life. And number two, as the woman said to Elisha, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This miracle demonstrated that this man and his message was truly from God. How so? Because he did something that only God could do. Gave life back to the dead. We have a similar story with Elisha, who was Elijah's, if you recall, is Elijah's successor and protege in the prophetic ministry. In 2 Kings chapter 4, there was another woman. This was a wealthy woman in Shunem, and she was a woman who cared, uh, who cared about Elisha. She offered him food, and she and her husband actually uh, built a small room on the roof of their house for Elisha to stay in whenever he came to town. And so to repay the favor, Elisha promised her that even though her husband was old, she would have a son, and God blessed her with a son. As you can probably guess, something tragic happened to her son too. One day when he was out in the field, he complained about his head hurting, and later he ended up dying in his mother's lap. It was a heartbreaking story. And so the Shunammite woman took her son where? To the upper room, to the prophet's room, and laid him down on Elisha's bed, and she went to get Elisha. And when Elisha heard about this, he sent his servant Gehazi ahead of him to lay Elisha's staff on the boy's face. But the boy remained dead. And so when Elisha went up to his room, to the upper room, he prayed to God, and then verse 34 says that Elisha went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. 
and he stretched himself out upon him, and the flesh of the child became warm. As with Elijah, the body-to-body contact here probably signified the transfer of life from the prophet to the boy, or perhaps it expressed the prophet's desire for the boy to be alive and warm just as the prophet was alive and warm. But for Elisha, the first attempt of laying on the boy didn't bring him back. And so verse 35 says that Elisha got up and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him again. Then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. And she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. And she picked up her son and went out. What do we learn from this story? Number one, that God is a compassionate God who has the power to give life. And number two, that Elisha was truly a man of God, just like Elijah before him. Now, in light of this backdrop, what can we say with regards to our resuscitation in Acts chapter 20? Well, we have a man of God in the upper room. It's not Elijah. It's not Elisha. It's the Apostle Paul. We also have a young boy who tragically dies. And we have a tragic death reversed by a miraculous resuscitation after which the boy is presented alive again to the people. And this miracle, like Elijah's and Elisha's, is performed in a distinct way. It's not by speaking to the body. It's by, in Paul's case, throwing himself upon the boy. Or for Elijah and Elisha, stretching themselves out upon the boy. It's by body-to-body contact with the corpse. And as I just mentioned, that contact probably represented either the transfer of life to the boy or the desire for the boy to be living just as they were. In short, Paul seems to have been following in the footsteps of the ancient men of God here in Acts chapter 20. While Elijah and Elijah both prayed, we don't have a record of Paul praying. Perhaps he did. Luke just doesn't say it. But we do know that it was the same God, Yahweh, who brought the boy's life back again. What do we learn from the miracle in Acts chapter 20? Number one, that God is a compassionate God who has the power to give life to the dead. And number two, that this man, Paul, was a true man of God, just like Elisha before him and just like Elijah before him. A true messenger with a true message. That also means, by the way, that Paul's God is the same God of the Old Testament. He's the same God of the Old Testament prophets. The same God who worked through Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament is now working through Jesus and through his apostles in the new. But not only does this compassionate God still give life to the dead, he does so. He does so in a much more significant way than resuscitation, than simply giving life back to broken bodies that die again. See, the resuscitation miracles, they actually point us to a far greater reality. They point us to the reality of of a greater miracle, the miracle of resurrection. See, see, miracles, they can have several purposes. They can validate messengers of God, like we see here. And they can also display the reality of the message itself. Bringing back Eutychus affirmed Paul in the lineup of true men of God. It did that. And at the same time, it helped demonstrate in a visible way, in a tangible way, in time and space, the realness of Paul's message. God really can give life to the dead. There's substance to this claim. There's reality to this claim. And the miracle is a glimpse of that reality. It's a taste of that reality. 
Seeing it should strengthen our faith in God as we trust in him to give us life. That is something we all need to trust in him for too, isn't it? See, the Bible says that we are all dead. We are all dead in sin. We were lifeless corpses, dead boys laying on the ground just like Eutychus. You see, the, the fall of man, though, it was not a fall from a two-story window. It was a fall to our deaths nonetheless, though. Having God is having life, spiritually speaking. By choosing to be our own gods, we lost life. We lost God himself, and we fell to our deaths. A far greater tragedy, I would argue, than the tragedy that we have here in the death of Eutychus. The Bible makes it clear that we not only remain in a state of spiritual death now, but as we read from the catechism question today, that we will experience the torments of eternal death forever in hell unless what? Unless our tragedy is miraculously reversed. Our compassionate God, who has the power to give life, makes us alive, just like he did for Eutychus. We need a miracle. We need not just to be resuscitated when our bodies die, We need God to raise us up from the dead, from our spiritual death, from our eternal death, to restore us to himself, to resurrect us, to resurrect, not just to resuscitate, but to resurrect our broken bodies when they die. We need new bodies that will be set free from all the consequences of sin, bodies that will be gloriously fit to live forever with him. That's what we need. We need a resurrection. And the message that was preached by Paul invalidated by miracles, was that God has done just that. That God actually became a man to throw himself upon you. He became a man, Jesus of Nazareth, to impart life to you, to transfer his warmth to you, to transfer his life to your dead corpse. He desired for you to be alive as he is alive. And so he throws himself onto you. He stretches out upon you. And through Jesus, God gives you life. He, God, puts to death your death through Jesus' death. Your dead heart died on the cross with Jesus. Your sin died with Jesus. And your eternal death died with Jesus. And then when Jesus was resurrected, three days later, not resuscitated, but gloriously resurrected, you were raised up with him. You are raised up with him. You are raised to life now spiritually. You have God now. You are restored to him now. You have eternal life now. And then when your present body runs its course, you will receive a new one. This broken thing is not going to be resuscitated again. It'll be restored. You'll receive a new body just like Jesus' body when he comes again in glory. You know, it's funny. I was telling someone uh, earlier this week, I was driving by a fitness place right down, right across the street here. And there was a sign by the road that said something like, you only have one body, make it last. Praise God, that's not true. This body will not last, but when it dies, you will be raised to life again with a new body that does last, one that lasts forever. Why would God do this for you? Because he is a compassionate God. We did not deserve life. We deserved our death. As the Bible says, that was the fair wage for our sin. We chose death over life. We chose sin over God. But God is a God of such great compassion, of such unfathomable mercy and love, 
that he raced down the stairs from the upper room and threw himself upon you, you who rebelled against him, you who hated him, to make you alive. That is the good news. God is a compassionate God who has the power to give life. We've seen that power. We've seen it on display in the miracles of Elijah and Elisha and Paul. But most of all, we've seen it in the resurrection of Jesus himself. God really can give you life. You can count on that. He desires to give you eternal life. He desires to give you resurrection life through Jesus. And the Bible says he gives it freely to all who turn away from their sin, who turn away from their death, and who trust alone in him to save them. Why would you choose death instead? Why would you choose to remain dead and to die forever? Let Christ take you in his arms, as Paul did to Eutychus, and present you alive to the world. He is greatly glorified in giving life. The story in Acts chapter 20 ends with a happily ever after. We hear first what happens with Paul, and then we hear what happens with Eutychus. Verse 11 says that when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And so departed. They had their fellowship meal. They likely celebrated communion. And what a celebration that must have been, huh? They had just witnessed the life-giving power of God. And they were celebrating in communion the one who gave them life through his death and resurrection. And as for Eutychus, verse 12, says they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. In other words, as some translations say, they were greatly comforted. It's interesting, one commentator noted here that the word comfort, quote, is the same verb used in 21, verse 1 of this chapter, for Paul's, quote, encouraging the disciples at Ephesus, and again in 20, verse 2, for his speaking words of encouragement to the Macedonians. Continuing with his quote, Paul's encouraging and strengthening of the Christians at Troas was especially through the miracle involving Eutychus. It was more than comfort they were encouraged and strengthened in their faith by what they had witnessed that night. In other words, just like, God, just like God had strengthened the saints through Paul's words, so too may they have been strengthened through Paul's miraculous work. Yes, they were definitely comforted by having the boy back again after tragically losing him in a horrible accident like this. That is what every grieving heart wants, right? To have them back again, and they got that. And that is probably the primary sense of the word that's being used here. But perhaps the scholar's correct in suggesting that the miracle also strengthened their faith. In fact, I would say that even if that's not what the word means here, it's still true nonetheless that the miracle should have strengthened their faith. Wouldn't it have strengthened yours to watch this? See, the raising of Eutychus powerfully displayed the realness of God's ability and desire to give life to the dead. Anyone who witnessed it or who heard about it should have found their faith strengthened. They should have been greatly encouraged. So my question for you in closing is pretty simple. Are you a Eutychus? Were you dead and now alive? If so, then our brothers and sisters today can still be strengthened by witnessing the life-giving power of Christ at work. Where? In you. In each other. Jesus has saved you. Your new life is a miracle. Your new life will demonstrate the realness of the power that Jesus has to give life to the dead. And you should, brothers and sisters, see that. 
they should be strengthened, just like the Christians in Troas were strengthened. Now, I'll just speak for myself here, but I'm sure you'll agree. When you see brothers and sisters growing in the faith, isn't it so encouraging for you? When you see them putting to death their old self and putting on their new self, doesn't that strengthen your faith? When you see that, you're witnessing the resurrection power of Christ at work. That should strengthen your confidence in him. It should strengthen your hope in him. It should strengthen your trust in him. It should strengthen your love for him. It should strengthen you as a follower of him. And so a few application questions for us. First and foremost, are you alive? Has Jesus made you alive? That's a difficult question to answer. Then the answer is definitely no. A dead person is radically different than a living person. Eutychus dead is very different than Eutychus alive. There's no mistaking the two. And so second question, if you are alive, how much are others able to witness your new life? If the answer for you is not very much, then it could be either because you just need to walk more in your newness of life and pursue Christ better, or because you need to be around others more. Either way, grow more in your new life in Christ and let others see it. Let others see it so that they can be strengthened in their faith. And lastly, how much are you being strengthened by witnessing Christ's resurrection power at work in others? Are you around your brothers and sisters enough to have your, your faith strengthened by what God's doing in them, in their life? If not, then I can tell you that you're missing out on a major, major source of encouragement. Stop depriving yourself. Witness the work of God in your brothers and sisters and let them witness it in you. So again, first ask yourself, are you alive? Second, how much are others strengthened by witnessing your life in Christ? And third, how much are you strengthened by theirs? Saints are strengthened through the words and works of other saints. God uses the words of other believers and the works that he does in other believers to strengthen believers. We asked this question at the beginning, do you want to be strong in your faith? If you do, then be with people who will build you up with their words. Be with people who will affirm the good in you, correct the bad, and tell you good things. A-C-T, act. Affirm, correct, and tell, just like Paul. Be around these people. And, and, fill your days with people who you can witness God's life-giving power at work in. God will strengthen you through the words and works of other believers. Similarly, do you want to help others be strong in their faith? Then the answer is the same for you. You strengthen the saints with your words and let them be strengthened by seeing the resurrection power of Christ at work in your own life. What a beautiful place this would be if we were all doing that, huh? If all of us were walking in the footsteps of Paul, strengthening each other and building each other up with our words and with the great work that God is doing in us. Amen? Let's pray that in together. Father, we thank you so much for the incredible miracle that you performed in Acts chapter 20 in raising Eutychus from the dead. We thank you even more for the greater reality that that miracle points us to, which is the reality of your life-giving power exercised towards us in Christ, that you have raised each and every one of us from the dead, that you have raised us, not just not resuscitated us back to life again in these broken bodies, that you have raised us to eternal life, and that will result in new,
glorified bodies forever, fit to inherit a new creation with life for you, with life with you forever. We ask, Father, that you would cause us to strengthen each other well, that you would cause us to strengthen each other with our words, and that we would strengthen each other with the work that you are doing in us. Help us to let other people see the incredible new life that you've given us in Christ, that they might be rightly encouraged by it, and cause us to be around each other enough to witness this incredible work in taking place in them. We pray that you would do this for your glory, and we pray that you would do it out of your love for us too. It's in your spirit we, we trust for these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.